Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Is your company proactive when it comes to scheduling? Many companies believe project schedules are just the requirements of the contract, but companies looking to gain an advantage strategically manage their project timeline, resources, and budget. Plan Academy helps construction companies improve their project controls through immersive online training courses. At Plan Academy, your team can learn construction, planning and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and can save your company thousands when compared to costly in-person training. Visit planacademy.com forward slash chatter to download course outlines and talk to a training specialist now. Hi everyone, this episode is brought to you by Just Do. Just Do is a portfolio project management tool we've been using at Project Chatter. Whilst all other systems cater for small teams, Just Do caters for teams large and small, plus it has no set hierarchies, meaning your structure, your platform, your workflow. I agree, Val. While Just Do is simple to use, it also has a lot of powerful functionality. My favorite is the task-specific chat. Yes, and for all you slackers out there, don't wait for Monday. Do check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. In this episode, we talk to Joe Lucas about rewilding. I hope I said that right. Rewilding organizations and minimal interference approach to delivering change. What an episode, Dale. Amazing. Joe has over 20 years of experience in delivering change within and between large and complex organizations. A huge bio, but I won't go through it all. Listen to the podcast. Interesting bit out of it, though, is Joe and her husband built a Reba award-winning house from Rusty Steel using modern methods of construction. And she gave a TEDx talk on superheroes and sidekicks on how to work within complex networks. Now, although we spoke about complex networks and, you know, change and how complex that might be, Val, she brought it back to very simple, easy to understand ways to look at how to tackle it. Um, And I wonder if you could maybe just draw out some of the highlights for you. Well, that's right, Dale. I think with her engineering background, she was able to kind of grasp uh, a different approach to people and cultures, Uh, but she did talk about thinking in systems. I thought that was a really interesting approach, uh, but also shadow organizations and words that maybe don't you don't hear often in project management like mycelium. And we did talk about things like critical points of failure in a project and how we might overcome those. Um, and then also some of the philanthropic, uh, philanthropic stuff that she's doing, uh, but we, won't, we won't, won't spoil it for the listeners just yet. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. We'll throw in a little bit from my side as well. Uh, bridge building she spoke about. I won't share yeah. too much on that, but go check that one out. And also CQ, cultural intelligence, and a little bit around that. So folks, sit back, enjoy the pod. Hello, project people. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's always great to have you with us. If you haven't already hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player, do so. And also check us out on YouTube, where you can watch us and stalk us and follow us and maybe see our guests as well. Why not? Uh, Dale, you've got a big event coming up. Please tell us about it. Yeah, well, by the time this podcast goes out, the event will have been done in London. But um, um, yeah, we, uh, we will hope, hopefully have had a massive um, network, free networking gathering. And um, we'll, we'll keep you posted for the next one as well, folks, in the UK. But um, Val was just joking about stalking us. Please don't stalk us. Uh, but I do have a question for you, listeners. If anyone has seen Martin, because he's gone AWOL on this episode, it's his turn. Last time Val went missing, but it's Martin this time. Val, any ideas where Martin is? have no idea. He's probably already at the pub, I would say. <laughs> Setting up. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's get into this today's pod. Uh, we will share some information about this uh, event later on, but this isn't about us. This is about... Joe Lucas. Joe, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. No, not a problem. Um, one, can I say congratulations on the topic title for this? Uh, some of these words I, I haven't really heard before, and I, I love to get into the, the linguistics of it and how you kind of came about with these. But, you know, as, as usual with most of our pods, we love to hear about our guests, where they come from, where they've been, how do they land, where they landed, particularly in projects, uh, because not everyone starts out going, I want to be a project manager or I want to work in projects dad it's it's more of a, a kind of a progression uh, over time and, and you certainly traveled uh, the world so rewilding rewilding did I say that right hopefully I did rewilding organizations one how did you end up in that position where you're rewilding organizations and then the follow-up question is probably what is it <laughs> um yeah the term rewilding is an a attempt to look at how language is used. Um, we are in a stage where we really need to shift how we operate and how we work. Um, and we need a language that allows that to happen. And I suppose it's been quite a long and wild, <laughs> wild ride to get to this point in any case. Um, but effectively, I work deep in what's generally called the shadow organization. So there's kind mm. of things which are explicit um, that you know, which are the rules of an organization. When you first join, they say, this is how we operate. And they tell you the governance routes and they explain you know, how you get things done. Um, and then as you sit there for a while, you start to realize that there's an entire different set of rules that run underneath the surface. And recently I've been reading a lot of books um, around the idea that trees can actually talk to each other. And it really struck me this idea that for, for that ecologists are only just getting their heads around the role that the fungi plays, mycelium that sits mm -hmm. between the roots of trees. And I do not, I, I probably get this completely wrong when I explain it um, from an ecologist point of view, because that's certainly not my background. But as they explained how this works in books like The Mother Tree, Finding the Mother Tree, or um, oh, there's, there's quite a few out there at the moment, which are just brilliant and worth reading. But it really struck me um, as the project manager and someone who's worked within those shadow organizations forever is that we've got something similar going on inside our own organizations. And 
there's it's almost like you know I work within the mycelium and we all know what that is you know you know the fact that oh actually it's Fred that you go find if you need to get that crane hired or the only way that you ever get anything into the boardroom is if you know the PA really well and they let you you know pass your paper through them or and these are mm -hmm. all the hidden ways that organizations work um, but the rewilding kind of came about on the concept that projects like I don't know if you've been in this situation but when when projects or an organization is sitting at that sort of 50 types 50 people or so um, they start to get a bit messy you know things that used to work because you knew everybody who was there and you had a kind of routine and you didn't need that many processes or anything and you're all feeling quite comfy and then suddenly it's like oh just a second who does that or who's that new person in the office oh wait a second who, 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 well, how does this work anymore and just for the entirety of my career, what we've done is we've kind of thought at that moment, you need processes. Mm. So as good management consultants, in you come and you put a whole stack of processes in. But the reality is, is that um, those processes are actually making, are trying to deal with, like you're trying to replace relationships with process. And it's a really messy way of working. And in reality, actually what we need to do is just take a much more structured approach to how relationships work. And if you take a more structured approach to how relationships work, I mean, we, we'd like to think that it should be easy. Relationships should be easy, but we work at our marriage and we work at our friendships. You know, we need to work at those relationships at work as well. Um, mm. and you need some sort of structure around that. And so from my point of view, um, it's a bit like rewilding. We're trying to get back to a relationship-based approach, even when it's 7,000 people trying to deliver something like High Speed 2. So very long rewilding. No, 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 it's perfect. But and I want to just add to that. Um, I mean, I, I love the idea of the mycelium approach. Uh, it's the second time I've heard it actually. Uh, Dave Snowden, episode thirty-three. I've got it etched in my mind. Dale, uh, he also mentioned about the difference between formal and informal networks, and he mentioned oh. mycelium as the informal network. And I would love for you guys to be introduced to each other because he's he's a lovely guy. Uh, the other one is, uh, you probably know this guy, the mushroom guy, uh, Paul Stamets. He's got a, a Netflix special on, I think it's fungi, something about uh, the mushrooms and how uh, between the mycelium, uh, they can share nutrients between mm. trees and communicate almost like a, a neural network. And I was like, oh my God. So my head did kind of mini imploded when I watched that. But anyone who is interested going down the rabbit hole with Joe, please check that out. I also want to know about your career, Joe. I want to know about you, the person behind the shadow organization. Oh, that's so good. It sounds like a Ninja Turtle movie, but what is what is Joe doing? I mean, how did you get to a point where this is kind of what you're doing with your work and your career? Did you start in, in this area or did you start in something else completely different and then switch? Um, tell me about you, Joe. Well, my career was utterly planned and it's gone exactly the way it was meant to the entire way through. <laughs> As any exactly. of us. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I think it all started with watching a movie. I can't remember. It's one of the Apollo movies. And I don't know if you remember it, but they basically put them in a room. And I think the lunar module has become disconnected from uh, the main module and they have to put them together. And um, classic silos working. You had one had a, a round and the other one had a square. And they're like, mm. Blast, these two things don't fit together. How do we fix this? Oh, my God. That's just the idea of being in a room and having to try and solve a problem like that was like, who gets to do that type of work? And of course it's engineers. And so I happily signed myself up to become an aeronautical engineer. Oh, <laughs> I love wow. the way people choose their careers. <laughs> I'm sitting in a movie theater and choose my career on this basis. But um, 
So I went to uh, University of Queensland and thankfully they do the first year as a common year. Um, and I found I come from a family of builders and obviously that seeped into my bones somewhere along the way because um, the concrete and steel and how things fit together side of things interested me a lot. And when things stay stationary, I found it quite unnerving, the whole mechanics side of things when things kept moving. Um, I was much happier with stationary objects. So um, yeah, so I ended up going towards uh, civil engineering and mm -hmm. graduated as that and ended up in Arab um, as a graduate engineer. And then decided, like most graduates in the Brisbane office of Australia, um, that we all want to head to the UK at some point. So I managed to wangle my way across into the UK. Um, but what had been happening is that um, right from the beginning, I ended up on mega projects. So I accidentally chose to be a civil structural engineer, um, primarily because mm. I love the guy who ran that department. Um, he's an absolute star of a man. He knows his bridges back to front. And he's a superb boss. Like he just knew how to teach people. He just never answered any of your questions. He just kept asking you more questions until you had that kind of, ah, I get it now. And then off you go and scribble away some calculations. So um, I chose him rather than the profession, but quite enjoyed building bridges, et cetera. But that department happened to do mega projects. And we used to do exchanges with um, London in order to do work in Singapore on the Northeastern line. Uh, extension and it, like I was beam girl and there was column boy and you know we just spent months and months and months designing the same thing over and over and over again and I remember this one day I walked over with my sort of you know my pad where I had my beams on it and I overlaid it over top of um, column boys columns and they weren't they didn't even never the twain shall meet and it was just still like <laughs> oh, We've been designing at different directions for God knows how long. Never even occurred to us to he'd been dealing with the trains that kept moving. So he kept having to move his columns. And I've got no idea where I was getting my data from, but it certainly wasn't coming from him. <laughs> oh, my God. It really um, I ended up, you know, I, I wrote an algorithm to do my beam calculations. And then I got on with um, ISO 1000 and whatever it was at the time, you know, Q, putting a QS system in or a quality system in um, into the Brisbane office. And I used to do the handover with the UK um, with a really great bloke over there. And we got on really well. So when I came over to the UK, he kept saying to me, oh, you should be a project manager. Like you really, you know, this engineering lark, come over, come over to the dark side. Mm. And um, I was working at our associates at the time with the architects, et cetera. And I had a particularly bad day where I think we spent the entire day just choosing the color of glass. I'm like, oh, this is just pointless. How <laughs> 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 was my career got down choosing the colour of glass. And yeah. so I shifted over into project management. He sort of happened to walk past on that day in those sort of serendipitous moments that you have in your career. And I'm like, right, I'm ready to go to the dark side. And mm. so I joined project management. At that point, project, oh, this will date me. Um, project management was quite a new, new thing. You know, we were just trying to figure out what was it, how did it work? You had to do all of it. You were like, you, you did your own risk registers. Uh, you did your own programs. You even did half of the QSing. You know, it's sort of, you very much had to have your finger in all the pies. And I really enjoyed that um, and moved to a company called the Nichols Group. And they're a family-based company. They're the closest I could find to Arab from, you know, that sort of family feel and that really strong culture. Um, but that got project management because it was a really new thing in Arab at that point in time. And 
what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be with the client. I hated this idea that you sat in an office and you're trying to project manage something that you couldn't, you couldn't do the relationships. And I suppose that was fundamental to me is this, this constant understanding of it was more than, it was more than just a risk register or a program or a, it's to get these complex projects working, you really need to dig um, under the surface and understand who's involved and who's really doing the work. I call them hidden voices um, or in social network analytics, you tend to call them key influencers or connectors. Mm-hmm. And it's just finding, um, there's a brilliant company called Innovisor and they do social network analytics and they've got this rule called the 3% rule. And it's something we all know from Twitter. <laughs> you know, It's kind of like 3% of the people within your network are influencing the 90%. And it's not to say it's always the same 3%, depends on the topic, you know, it depends on what you're trying to do. But there's this very small cadre of people that you need to bring along if you're going to create change. And so I ended up working in, um, in what was called Metronet at the time, which was trying to upgrade half of the London Underground. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very, very green, didn't have a clue what I was doing. I'd landed supposedly to work for somebody and provide a bit of support. Um, but, you know, basically in the week that I arrived, he was walked out the door. <laughs> and I mean, he was quite an influential person because he turned around to me and he just said, look, you can do this role. I'm like, I don't even know what this role is. How can I do it? You know, how does this work? Mm. No, you really just trust yourself, step forward and take it on. Um, just take it on. And so I ended up setting up and running what's called the Access and Logistics Department, um, which pretty much was the reason why people on the underground didn't get to ride for years and years and years on end on weekends because there were blockades. You know, I was the one sort of planning those forward into the future. Um, and because I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, you know, I really had to just figure it out as I went along. Um, and the only thing I could do is go talk to lots of people. So I just you know, I just talked to one person and that would lead me to the next person. And at the beginning, my questions were, well, what is access and logistics? Like, what happens here? And it's yeah. like, oh. And then it was basically like every single piece of four million pounds worth of work per day has to make it onto the railway. And it can only do that in these tiny little windows at nighttime. Like you've got three to four hours where you may get an hour's work if you're lucky. And then you've got the weekends and you're not allowed to do that very often. You've got to really negotiate to get those because that just annoys half of London um, every weekend. So Transport for London were very tight about we don't want to close constantly. And what what turned up is all roads led to this one guy whose name was Richard. And he lived in the basement at at, uh, Hogan. (laughs) His job was to hand out a ticket that said you can go on the railway. So he basically gave the number. And like he was really experienced. It's like, you know, the guy had worked across the railways and he knew his trains and he knew how to close the railway in various ways. But he he was deciding who got onto the railway based on his own knowledge and based on who filled in his forms correctly. He was completely oblivious to the fact that there was an entire department whose only job was to work out strategically which piece of work needed to go first. And so he was letting lots and lots of track work happen. And there was an entire signaling piece of work where the guys, you know, they didn't know to the last minute they needed a closure, track it. Signaling is really a, a big bang type thing. So it's messy, messy, messy. It's an IT type project. Messy, mm. messy, messy until the moment they need. And then they're like, oh, blast, we actually have to get on the line to do this bit. <laughs> and they never remembered to actually book it until the last second. So they drove this poor guy, Richard, nuts. So he never gave them any space. 
So you've got the entire boardroom going ballistic. They're like, we're paying a fortune for strategic planners. And, you know, why is this entire project not moving? And you find out that there's one bloke who, you know, utterly unintentionally a really solid performer. Like there's nothing. He was, he was working his heart out to try and make all this work. But one person was running this entire project. And that just blew my brain because mm. I really got a fundamental feeling of you need to find these key influences, these hidden voices. And actually, they're rarely who you think they are. They're your document controllers. They're your commercial one who signs off the timesheets. <laughs> they're the PA to the board that signs off the governance routes. You know, it's, it's you know, they're your technical geek who doesn't want to talk to anyone else because they just want to do their technical stuff. But actually, they're the ones who sign off all of the technical drawings and keep all the engineers confident that what's happening is right. And so that's been the way I've been moving ever since is um, I land on a project and I look for those key influences and I co-create with them, which is where the name for our company ended up coming from. Um, so, you know, I worked on projects like Metronet and then met, left from there onto the Olympics um, mm. where we were looking to try and get all the bridges across. So that was a lot of sort of partly access and logistics, partly just a whole lot of contractors in a really tight space. So lots of relationship management of who's going to clean the road. And I mean, it gets down to those basic things, things like who's going to clean the road was causing mammoth delays in the project. And people would be like, well, this is an important issue. <laughs> and it's like, well, it is because, yeah. you know, safety reasons, they can't move their trucks. So therefore nothing moves. And um, so, and they're really easy problems to solve, but there's just this massive gap between the people in the treetops who are making decisions and the people in the mycelium who are getting on with their day job. And yeah, worked on at, at it, uh, Heathrow, um, yeah, and then more recently, I've been working on uh, the relationship between Transport for London and High Speed 2. And that's been deeply fascinating because you effectively have two behemoths. You know, one's like a, a mega startup, you know, all these hundreds and yeah. hundreds of companies coming together to try and build what is a ridiculously ambitious and complex railway um, from, at this point, London up to Birmingham. And then you have Transport for London, you know, the old grandma who's been there forever um, has sort of got all these arms and legs that, um, and it's a bit of an unusual situation for TFL to be in, Transport for London to be in, because they're not party to this one. Whereas Crossrail, they were in the thick of it. They're one of the partners. On this mm -hmm. one, um, they are, they're just being impacted by it. You know, there's going to be uh, disturbances for, 15 years, say, 10, 15 years during the build process, lots and lots of lorries thrown onto the roads. Um, they've got to upgrade Euston Station to deal with the extra capacity of people that are going to come in. But TfL doesn't have a seat at the table in the most traditional sense. They're definitely a third party. So I've been looking at everything, the relationship between the two, um, from everything from the contractual, you know, what are the legal requirements between the parties, right the way through to what are the processes and then what are the relationships that need to happen and when you think about those two parties one they certainly don't have the same aims one's trying to build really fast and one is trying to you know um, keep London moving how best they can these are two very opposing themes um, mm. and, and you can't change either of them they're too big to say you need to work to my way 
they're very used to being the party who says to the other party, you must work in my way, this is the only way it works. When you've got two big behemoths like that, they really can't shift. There's, it's, as much as they can yell at each other, that won't happen. And so what we have to do, and I find this highly amusing, I call them bridging processes. So I started in bridges, and now I build bridges between these big organisations. And all you do is you just sort of tie together, um, you know, this is how you normally work. 90% of it still works perfectly fine. And then here's a little bridge between you that makes sure that the beginning of each piece of work, we're really clear on how you're going to operate together and that you're working in accordance with the legal obligations. But also, um, as much as anything, the relationships. So we actually name, you know, who's the key person on this? Who do you need to keep in, uh, like keep on the journey with you? And you tie it into the document control system and you tie it into the commercial system and you tie it into the planning system. And in that way, you know, it can live and breathe and you do it through these interactive forms and that allows it to grow and continuously learn as it goes along. I've got no idea what we've done on this, but that's where I got to. No, no, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, see, this is why it's important, I think, for us to know the journey of everybody who comes on the show, because Dale and I are fascinated how people end up doing what they ended up doing. I mean, no idea before you started that you, you know, on the bridges and, um, you know, Beam Girl and Column Boy, I, you know, now that's stuck in my head. Uh, <laughs> and, and the whole element of taking some of your kind of previous experience and then applying that to your new roles. Uh, and I guess my, my follow-on question around that is, before I hand it to Dale, because I know he's got a few, How, what's the technique? Is there a big whiteboard? Are we doing this like old school project management where there's just this huge wall and we're all putting you know, process? I mean, there's some level of unpacking, I imagine, that your team or yourself do, does. Uh, how do you do that? And what <laughs> is there a technique that you follow? Um, there is, but actually what I'm finding highly amusing is that um, I'm a pure practitioner. So mm. I, and I'm a systems thinker, which I've only just recently really realized that's what it's called. But <laughs> it does mean it's really hard for others to understand what's going on inside my head. Um, and it does make it quite hard for me to articulate it using the language that we currently have in the project management world, because we don't talk in systems naturally, as, as natural systems, human systems. I don't mean a system as a machine. I mean, those wonderfully complex, ever-changing, self-organizing, wiggling masses, which are why I love the language um, of nature as a way of being able to talk about what this is. So can you still hear me properly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we still got you. Um, so in terms of technique, uh, effectively, there's this concept of the 3%, which we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and so you go in, you interview people, um, invariably within a, about five, 10 interviews, you start to hear similar stories from different perspectives. Um, and that really lets you kind of narrow down one, what the issue is, like what's kind of going on under the surface, where are the blockages, what's not quite working, you start to get a sense of it. But what you also get a sense of is who are the key players? Like who are these influential people who are either blockers, knowledge keepers, um, they're just you know, causing disruption, you have a whole combination of positive, good, bad, indifferent. And generally it's not intentional on anyone's behalf. It's because something's happening in the system that's not letting them get their job done properly or you've got someone isolated off somewhere. And I bring those people together and um, we work on, on the solution. It's like, how do you want to work? How, do you, how are you actually working? Because what the reality is, is that we get this gap, this reality gap between what the process is saying 
and how it's supposed to be working and what's actually happening at the ground level. And so I sometimes think about myself like an anthropologist. You're really just trying to do a lot of listening and a lot of observing and a lot of trying to get under the surface. And then you start to see the patterns. And I suppose that's the way my brain works is I start to see like, oh, actually, just a sec, if we just tied this to this, or we started to move this to here, or if we just pulled this in. And in reality, there's the, it, whilst it sounds incredibly complex, um, it really often boils down to a decent spreadsheet, um, which becomes your single source of truth. Um, you almost always need to have a regular meeting, which is actually has to be a working meeting. It can't just be a nice to have meeting. You've got to be doing something really important there, which probably makes the worksheet, the, the spreadsheet work. Um, and then you need to have clear, you know, once you've agreed which way it's going to work, you start to write that down in very clear flow charts that people can actually use, not Visio ones that are just blow your mind. I'm talking step-by-step -step IKEA manual type thing. You know, <laughs> anyone can pick it up and use it is the main aim. Um, and that you have some pretty straightforward forms and things like that that are easy to fill in that just make sure that you force the behaviours that people want to do anyway. They just get a bit caught up in the day-to-day -day and forget to do. Um, and you just try and make people's, I, I often think about it like as if you're wandering through a forest and there's a whole lot of knotweed and you're like, right, let's just tear out the knotweed so we can see the path again. It's not like there wasn't a path. Um, the path's there and people are trying their dandest to get through it. But sometimes they're having to go all the way through the forest and sometimes they're having to go, you know, climb the trees to get out. And sometimes they just give up and sit down and go, what well, the process, you know, the pathway is supposed to be there. It's not there. Well, what can I do? I, it's above my pay grade. I can't solve this problem. <laughs> and so you're just there going, right, there's the bindweed. Let's tear that out. That's what I tend to call minimal interference. You try not to uproot the trees. You know, let's not think that the entire forest needs to be replanted just so that it can be a neat rose to make your life easy. Um, Let's accept where the trees are. Let's see where the desire lines are, like the pathways people like to use. And let's give them a good clear out so that people can start moving along them properly. And actually this work, you know, I did the TFL HS2 work as, as a consultant on my own um, because you're utilizing the entire, um, the entire network, the whole project to make it work. So you don't need to go in in big teams. When I first started my career, you'd go in with, you know, huge numbers. And I was in PwC for a period of time. And it was just normal to go in with 15, 20 people. And you'd be the experts and you'd tell them how to do it. Whereas um, <laughs> I just rely utterly on the people who are in there um, and on their mm. knowledge and on trusting them, trusting that they actually know how their business works and know many more layers than I do as to what the politics are. Um, and my job is just to, you know, start to see, I, I can, I'm quite good at seeing the pathways despite the bindweed um, and giving that a good clear out and going, is it that way? And they'll often go, oh, my God, thank God, we haven't seen that path for a while. And you kind of know you've got it right, because once they start moving down the pathways properly, um, they forget that it wasn't always like that. They'll really like, if I do my job be the best I can, people will forget that I had anything to do with it. It's just like, well, of course, that's the pathway. We've always been on that pathway. That's the great pathway. I love it, Joe. It's I love the way you're stripping it back and just, you know, simplifying it for everyone. And the approach sounds really refreshing. 
because we've had a lot of discussion around processes and you know technology and all these weird and wonderful new things that are coming our way that would improve project management and how we actually deliver. Um, yet what you're suggesting, I think, is just stripping it back a little bit and go, actually, you know, what really matters and how do we see the wood from the trees? Uh, and I want to come back to what you said, I guess, at the beginning of the pod around uh, processes versus relationships. And you, you, you build a very good analogy around, you know, you're in, you build a relationship with your partner, with your friends, with your family, etc. And that's no different if you're working in a team, a project team. And I just wondered then, because ordinarily you, okay, maybe you can't choose your family, but you choose your friends, you choose your partner, you typically court or you'd, you know, you'd hang around people before they become your friends and things like that. And I guess getting into a team, whether it's organizational team or a project team, you don't have that courting period. You don't have that adjustment period to figure out the relationships. Now, those listening to you going, okay, well, if I'm to create a team that works well and that has good relationships, is it about the hiring? Because then there's also the school of thought, well, if you hire people that typically get along, maybe you get groupthink, you don't get the diversity of thought. Um, but maybe it's not about hiring. Maybe it's about having, as you say, the right catalysts or the key influences to bind all of that together. So this is just me thinking out loud as a bit of a brain vomit, maybe if that's the right way to put it. Um, but I want to come back to that because there, there's a place for processes as well. Mm. Let's face it, in, in certain instances, it, it, it does give us, you know, we've said it before, freedom within this framework. So the framework is important. So we know kind of which general direction we're heading. Um, but I think the glue that you're talking about, keeping that together, going the same direction, is actually what um, it is the relationship bit. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't even know if there's a question in that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I can, a couple of things that are springing to mind as you say this. So one, um, I love the fact that we as humans love things to be binary. We love a this versus that. Yeah. There is no this versus that in this situation. It is processes and relationships. Processes certainly do have a place. Um, I'm probably more inclined to call them frameworks or structures. Um, and if you're a Brené Brown listener, she often talks about guardrails. Um, and I really like the idea of guardrails. So you can do whatever you like as long as you're inside those guardrails. It's pretty much how I parent. It's like they've got incredible freedom. And then it's like, ah, <laughs> don't you go over that line. And I'm probably pretty much the same at work, you know, incredibly relaxed until the moment somebody steps over the line of just a sehi. That's outside of the rules we set up between us. Um, you, you, I, I, I possibly refute the concept that you don't choose your colleagues we choose it in the culture we create that then attracts the people who choose to come to your, com your, your company. And as much as we like to think that we've got it down to a fact-based process to bring people into our organizations and that it's all blind, whatever, the reality is, is that I'd say 80 to 90% of people who are hired are hired through a friend of a friend or a mate of a mate or somebody who knows somebody, um, you know, especially in the major projects world or even the projects world where it is quite tiny really in reality um, the number of phone calls you get going do you know this bloke and are they any good um, is pretty standard so I mm. think companies do attract certain people in and so if you're finding that you've got a lot of um, poor relationships I'd say it's the system not the people um, 
And I really do believe heavily in the concept that actually the behaviours that you see um, are heavily driven by the system. Um, and that's, um, that's really, we need to focus on that. You know, we need to think, well, let's stop trying to blame any individual. It's, it's let's stop trying to figure out how to make everyone friends. You don't need to be all friends. This is not the aim here. It's, and actually you said something there, Dale, that really um, is something that I'm talking a lot about, a lot about with people at the moment is this idea of having somebody who is in the role of a connector you know, a relationship, like a therapist for work. Um, it, it sort of feels like a necessary thing. And we, we, I mean, I'm laughing about it, but I'm actually deadly serious. Um, I've got an image behind me, which is a tree, which is um, the first Bramley apple tree and then the mycelium that sits underneath it, the root system. And we run our projects as if everything's above the line, that it's all the tree. And we don't run our projects as if there's anything going on underneath. You know, we, we kind of hope that sorts itself out somehow. Um, we may send our teams off for a bit of an away day or we're saying they just aren't working hard enough or they've got this issue. And instead of sitting back and going, actually, what's going on in our system that's enabling that poor behaviours to occur? Because people don't turn up to work to have poor behaviours or poor relationships. Actually, the vast majority of our strongest relationships do sit in our workplaces. We spend a huge amount of time there often more than we do with our family or our friends um and and it's not about it's about being clear about who you are um i i did a tedx talk um a couple of years back which was called superheroes and sidekicks and that was all about um what you need to do as an individual to survive in the mycelium i didn't call it the mycelium at, at that point but um the idea is surviving in these complex networks we work in and the reality is, is that so we're given so little time to really dig into what's my superpower. You know, our entire education system is all about being an all-rounder. You know, you've got to be good at everything and you've got to fix the things you're not good at. And it's all about the hero mentality of I've got to win. And I, I just don't buy into that in the slightest. If you're going to survive in our complex world, one, you need to know what your superpower is. You know, what is it that I uniquely do? What's my story? And what perspective am I bringing to work, including all the crap, like all yeah. the bits of, you know, all your own personal, personal issues that you've got from your upbringing and from the relationship you have with your dad or the relationship you have with your brothers or whatever. No, I'm going for the males here. Um, <laughs> my very male-orientated world I live in. Um, and we need, to, we need to think, who are our teammates? Like, who's your sidekicks? Like... When you're kicking on all cylinders, who have you had around you? And that's not just at work. You also have a partner at home who, when you go off to do something mega at work, my God, are they doing some sidekick work, you know? And also you're a sidekick for other people. You know, there's plenty of times where you're, especially as a consultant, most of my time is as a sidekick to someone else. And so really recognizing this team concept, um, knowing who you've got to have around you to make you operate. And then it's about, you know, I call it the power of 10. I love all these terms. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, who, and then for this particular problem, who do I need to be working with? And what does that relationship need to look like? And some people call it kissing the frog, you know, when it's that person where, oh, for me, it's generally a lawyer. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> the bloody mindedness of a lawyer against the mind of an engineer. It's just never going to end well. Um, <laughs> but I spend half my life having to work with lawyers. And so there's always this element of this is the perspective they're coming from. Whether I like it or not, I've got to have this conversation. It's probably going to be a bit uncomfortable, 
but the reality is, is without this conversation, this project can't move forward. So I don't need to be best buddies. And actually, generally, I like them quite well at the pub. <laughs> it's just in that room when you're having one of those conversations about we can change that word. You know, this is not sensible. Yeah. It's like, but it doesn't have precedence in law. It's like, oh my God, I don't care what precedence is. What's the future? So yeah, you're just different. You got you just recognize you're talking from very different standpoints, and that's fine. And it's having a bit of um, Julia Middleton calls it um, cultural intelligence. Um, and it's, I, I love her concept of cultural intelligence in relationships because I think it's fundamental. Um, and she doesn't just mean culture in terms of different nationalities, although that certainly comes into it. Um, it's culture from every aspect. So the lawyer versus the engineering mindset is a cultural difference. And, and she's just got, again, I love it. She's got a very simple rule on this. She's like, figure out what's core to you. Like, what do you, what, if you stopped doing this, would you stop being you? And then she says, flex everything else. And that's the only way you can have strong. So uh, we don't get taught this stuff. <laughs> you know, you have no, to learn yeah. it. No, I, I agree. And it's great. And that's why we talk to people like you to actually bring this to the surface. Um, as you say, it's all underneath. And, you know, and Val and I have spoken on previous episodes how we often felt that project controls or PMO had to kind of fill that gap and be that glue on a project because we do touch all of the various elements and the various functions, the various departments, speaking to engineers about progress all the way through to your project manager and what you want to report and et cetera, and then bring that back up to the project director. And they have very different relationships to what we have as project controls. And so invariably we'd have to be almost sometimes that, as you say, that mycelium perhaps and going, well, if you did this differently or looking at it through a different lens, then perhaps you'd have a different outcome. And I think that's an incredibly difficult skill to have because as you say, it's relationships and it's understanding humans and individuals and building those relationships and actually taking the time out to, to actually know each other and understand each other. I also like in your um, analogy or your story there about, you know, in the boardroom, we're in the meeting room, you might have a bit of a debate, but at the pub, it's okay. My analogy is the rugby field between the start whistle of the rugby match and the end whistle, you're absolutely smashing each other. But then that final whistle goes, you go, well done, great tackle, let's go have a pint in the pub. Um, and for me, that is what projects are about as well, because they are complex, they are pressurized, they are tough. But I think at the end of the day, those relationships will actually help you get through it as well. And so I love the fact that we're talking about project, we're talking about change, we're talking about how everything comes together, but we're actually going back to the human side of everything as well. And that is quite important. I just want to jump back to um, what you said a little bit earlier as well about building bridges and, you know, your story about TFL and HS2 and, you know, the, the one going back to your, your access days, finding out, was it Richard that sat in, you know, the, the underground there and figuring all of that stuff out and you going in as an individual and assessing it. Now, I just wonder those listening out going, actually, that sounds pretty cool where you go in and you assess and analyze, you know, the, I guess, the ecosystem and how it works. And there's, there's obviously certain skill you've picked up along your journey to identify and, and find little signs and triggers of what to look out for. Can anyone get into doing what you do? Or is it something that they have to go along a path and say, you know, check this out, get a bit of experience in this and that before you come and try and do what I do? Just for those interested listening to go, actually, Joe, I really like what you do. How do I get into it? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. 
to be honest. Um, I One, I'd recommend reading Donella Meadows, Thinking in Systems. Um, I've actually done this the wrong way around. I've had to learn it all the hard way, make all my mistakes, and then read Donella Meadows and go, oh, is that what I was doing? <laughs> um, so, yeah, just just cut out all the bit that I had to go through and just read Donella Meadows um, because she puts it so well about what's going on. And I think it is something that can be learned. But what I do find is that I think there's a proportion of the population who are naturally systems thinkers. So if you find yourself a natural connector, you're the one that sort of ends up tying bits. And like what I find deeply interesting is I've got this crew of connectors around me nowadays that we've sort of grown over the years. Um, and again, this is sort of across different companies and, and we, we have all sorts of things, book clubs and we have dinners and we have all sorts of things that sort of sit around this. Um, but it's sort of attracted all the connectors in the industry because they've heard somewhere or even on my LinkedIn, I've said I'm a connector and they've gone, oh, my God, I'm one of those. So I think there might be a certain element of self-identifying. Um, and also we come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, so my particular skill set is to do with uh, the technical function, like taking the engineers or the lawyers or the people who have really deep specialized knowledge um, and tying that into the bigger system. So I'm almost taking the, the um, hidden and making it slightly more visible and tucking it into the visible mechanism. So I'm trying to tie them into the, the formal governance routes so all that hidden stuff actually works. Um, I prefer to just change the formal governance routes, but that's almost impossible. Invariably, you do need to just work with what's there and then just figure out where to tuck it in. Um, whereas I've got other people that I work with who they're the political animals. You know, they really get how to tie, connect the politicians and um, how they operate in a policy level into a project so that they can support it and so that you get the proper stakeholder relationships. Very different skill set. You know, I, I end up more in the process world as in I have to create feedback loops, I need to create avenues and these pathways we talked about, you know, I'm here slashing and burning my pathways and, and working deep in the forest. Whereas they're having cups of coffee, you know, <laughs> it's all and, and actually doing seriously hard work whilst they have cups of coffee, because you cannot underestimate how much um, energy goes into emotional, uh, emotional work. And it, it is a job and it's one that's utterly unrecognized. So the people who do that work, one, I say hats off to you. You know, that is serious work where you're working at that mind shift level. Um, trying to get, uh, say, a politician working with um, a delivery organisation and managing those relationships such that you, that, you know, if you're an actual therapist, you're only allowed to work something like 20 hours a week because it takes such a toll on you emotionally. Um, whereas we just take it as part of the day job, you know, off you go, go mm. sort out the relationship between these two parties. And if it's not hurting you that much, and if it's not sort of, you know, then you're not probably not doing the work. So in terms of can anyone do it, I think there probably needs to be, we need to have the specialists in this world. And I really don't want to pull them out of being specialists and into the connecting world if, if they're a proper specialist. You know, we need everyone's skill set. But if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I'm a connector, that makes sense to me. Like, that's the sort of work I do. I'm always in the thick of these things from all different angles. Mm. Then, yeah, you can do this. Um, it generally gets titled management consultancy. I, I never get hired to do what I do. Um, I'm generally hired for, you know, technical assurance or governance or, I don't know, just this is a Joe-shaped hole and we need a Joe in here is <laughs> <It's, it's> actually <laughs> more likely to be how it ends up. Um, yeah. 
you don't get hired to come in and do this. And I'd love that to change in our industry, that we recognise this entire invisible world and the fact that we need the connectors yeah. um, in all different shapes and sizes, managing the relationships and working out how these things work. No, that's excellent. It's it's also good insight to those listening. But the other thing you mentioned, and I have it's just one more before I hand to Val, you mentioned around key influences and you said perhaps we need to have someone on the project that, you know, looks for these, you know, relationships and how they work. What are some of the tricks that you use to identify the key influences, if you may give away some of your secrets there? No, no, it's not secrets at all. Um, I think I've got a slightly odd brain, so <laughs> it, it may have just been built that way. You're in I good went, company. <laughs> yeah, I, think um, I, I went to a, a talk um, that was given um, on Bank Station um, by Simon Eddyman, uh, who I think is Dr. Simon Eddyman nowadays. Um, and he explains social network analytics. It's a series of circles all tied together with all these links. Um, and it, it was just like seeing my brain up on a screen. It's like, my God, that's that's basically, you know, that's what I see in my head is all of these different connections and all these different people. And my brain's trying to find a structure through it of a, wait a second, if we tied this one with this one. Um, because when you're dealing with like 7,000 people, pfft, there's just no chance that you're going to know everybody. <laughs> You've really got to hone in on just the people. Uh, the, and also just talk to people. Like, I mean, I'm such a talker and I find it amusing that my greatest skill is active listening. <laughs> it's like, I mean, talk about being given, I, I suppose they say all your skills sit on a spectrum. So yeah. I suppose because to do my real work, I have to go in and, you know, when I start a project, all I can do is, talk to as many people as possible and hold really in-depth conversations to try and get under the surface. And I have to hold my tongue because I know nothing at that point. And, and then once I get my teeth in, I talk nonstop, but that's beside the point. <laughs> so yeah, so it's active listening, it's observing, it's paying attention. And actually um, if your brain doesn't work in the odd way of creating its own social networks, use social network analytics, you know, it is a tool and it is a proven tool and probably more reliable than my brain um, for picking out who these key influencers are. They can actually just do simple surveys and they can say, here are the connectors and they can actually pick up all sorts of really fascinating information. That's really insightful, uh, Joe. And I think, you know, we're nodding in, in the background because Dale and I have done probably similar things, but we didn't know what to call them. I, I think a lot of this subject matter uh, has to, be borrowed as, as you have from other fields. And I think there's something around uh, cross, cross, not cross culture, but cross collaboration between theories and knowledge banks. And we've had a lot of different people on this show from various, from actors to comedians, to communication specialists, to, you know, not therapists, but people in the organizational change area. And they all bring fascinating insights and facets to project management. As you said, project managers are kind of, you know, they're meant to have their fingers in all pies. Um, I think that's kind of slightly changed over the last maybe five years in particular. They're doing a lot less of the kind of doing work. They're more kind of facilitating the politics and the relationships. And I guess there's relationships, doesn't, they don't go away. Uh, and, and so I really love your point around um, communicating and being a little bit of a therapist in terms of how you engage with these relationships and you know, one of the reasons I, I was I was interested in that is because I'm I'm studying business psychology at the moment. I I saw a talk um, by a guy I think he's a Deloitte guy, and I never heard of business psychologist before. 
and he gave this talk for this leadership training course I was in, Joe. And I walked out of that. I was like, this is amazing. All the stuff he talked about is what we're doing now. It's a bit like when you read that book on systems thinking. It's like, it all makes sense now. And just being able to categorize my own brain, because it's all just post-it notes in there, Joe. And <laughs> sometimes I need, <laughs> you're nodding, so you're probably the same. We're just, just a bit of organization in there just to get it all, uh, all working in the right uh, format. But my question is, is probably around, um, you know, you mentioned cultural intelligence. So can we, we break that into a little bit more of an understanding? Because I, I work in a space very similar, I think, where sometimes it is just a Joe role or a Val role. They're like, oh, well, we just need Val in here because it's not necessarily what he does, but he would be able to fix it and how he does it. And he'll be able to connect these guys with those guys and, and it'll work, uh, which I don't mind doing because it's a, you know, any problem is a good problem uh, for a consultant and I, and I enjoy the challenge. But I think there's an element of, culture that's not being recognized as a value set so what i mean by that is i go into projects and they said you know the, the team's not performing we're not delivering results we're not hitting the the, the markers or the, or the benchmarks whatever they might be and they'll look at the numbers and i'll say yeah. well, what about the narrative what about yeah. the story what about the as you said the mycelium or the informal networks how are they being developed are they not important what's important val is that we hit this day one of operations that's what's important so yeah okay so I think there's a, there's a gap between culture and, and real results that's not being educated in project management. Um, I'm just wondering, what's cultural intelligence do? How could that be helpful for people maybe listening who have that same problem? I'm not sure if it's necessarily cultural intelligence, although that certainly helps because that is what is behind um, relationships. And just to give a little... Uh, Julia Milton moment here in terms of what how you get to cultural intelligence you know we started with IQ which is how clever are you and I think half the time our reporting stopped at the IQ stage um, <laughs> we kind of went right that's good enough for us let's stay there yep. you can count those I like counting things so let's just count things yeah. and um, we'll be fine um, and then you move on to EQ and that's you know how do we get on with each other and what Julia loves to say at this moment is you know I'm really good I've got great EQ I can get on with and they forget to put the bit, end on the bit, which is people like me. And so she's like, CQ is, but can you get on with people who aren't like you? Um, and that's a fundamental skill to be able to reach across the boundaries um, and to be able to work uh, beyond your authority. So there's the day job and what it says on the tin and what your job description says. Um, I don't think I've ever, ever worked to a job description. You know, it's sort of like, well, that's nice. Now what mm. actually needs to be done? Um, and I think lots of people get trapped in their job description. And of course they get trapped in it. You know, that's the route to, you know, you work your way up the bands, you work your way up the hierarchy and, and the whole aim of the job is to get to the top. And it's like, just to say, isn't the aim to deliver some things for people, you know, who need to move around London or who need to have clean drinking water or who we kind of forget the end output of what we're doing this work for. And, and I think at this time when we are in a climate and biodiversity emergency, you know, we've got an IPCC report coming out that will tell us we've got no more than four years to fix this problem. You know, if this isn't, you know, the, if this isn't the most mega of mega projects, and so therefore if this isn't the community to come forward and solve this problem, um, than what is. And if we keep having the wrong value set, as you call it, um, we're not going to fix this problem. This is not about when are we going to get on site with the climate emergency? It's like, no, 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 this is not one of those problems. You know, this has gone into such complex lands that, you know, we're, we're more in the roomy world of take one step forward and the way will emerge. And 
you just have to trust that you take each step and it's a lot of little steps and it can't be the same people taking those steps. It's like, we all need to take steps forward. Um, mm. and, and we, and in order to do that, you know, again, we go back to this idea of you need to know what your skill set is because you have a lot more agency and you have a lot more influence than you actually believe. And we all have the ability to take that step forward um, within our sphere. And actually, if we do it collectively, and if we start finding each other and working together as teams, um, you know, this is a solvable issue. It is something we can, we can, you know, these are systems. So therefore, if you leverage the right point, um, you can get completely out of proportion change. But if we keep doing exactly what we've always done, Bayer leads the road to madness. <laughs> Well, that, now there's some good points in there. You've actually just uh, sparked my interest, my philanthropic interests, uh, because we, we do want to obviously talk about societal outcomes. And I think a lot of the times where once we're removed, we're in a project, we just think about the project, but we don't feel, we don't realize that there's a societal impact for every project that we build, especially now. Most, I mean, particularly in Australia, I don't know if you've been watching uh, Joe, but we, we've got probably the biggest infrastructure and transport boom ever, but we're not necessarily linking that to societal outcomes and some of them should be environmental. So I think the UK is starting to do this now. I saw the latest uh, UK infrastructure pipeline report um, where they are linking built environment and natural system environments. They are, I think, looking how they kind of make their impact and, and contribute to, uh, you know, things that don't just help them, but help the environment at large. I mean, we all have to get together, but I'll, I'll come back to you. Eliza, your sticking point around, you know, there's the, the parties you mentioned, you know, HS2 and transport for London, that that big, you just can't change them. And, and, and that concerns me around the environment when we talk about how we get people kind of to bring together. We, we need almost, you know, transatlantic. We need people to have mycelium stretches across coasts, across countries and boundaries. I mean, that's a big stretch from where we are today with, with so much conflict in the world. And I, know I don't want to get political, but how do we do that? Is there, what's your thoughts and how can we help each other? Just, you know, let's whiteboard today. Dale, get the whiteboard ready. We'll just spit out some ideas. I mean, any, we might spark someone who has the idea that does something about this that can help us bring this together, or it could be us, who knows. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Joe. Yeah, well, this is how I ended up doing this exact exercise, <laughs> how I've ended up leading a not-for-profit. So we're not doing it again. Yeah. Oh, I mention, do mention it as well. Do mention you're not-for-profit. I, I love the idea um, too. Well, it is exactly in this space. It was asking that exact question in reality. It's quite amusing that we've ended up in that same place again. So <laughs> it's obviously a problem that needs to be solved. Um, so I run a not-for-profit called Ego to Eco. Um, and it's the idea of shifting from an egocentric, we are the owners of a system approach, which is beautifully in a triangle, which reminds me always of the wonderful iron triangle of time cost mm. That yep. traps us in quite regularly, um, moving to a lovely circle, circular economies, um, where we are a presence within, a regenerative presence within the ecosystem. We take our place as opposed to having control over it. And I really love this imagery. Um, and at this moment in time, of course, I can't remember where it comes from, but um, it's, it's this idea of shifting from ego to eco. And what I'm particularly interested in is um, what does it mean for you? to shift from ego to eco. And I think what we're doing at the moment that you're talking about TFL or HS2, yeah, they're really difficult to move, really difficult to move. And actually you take that larger and you get to a government. Um, yeah, really hard, it does. Cause like mm. you've seen the changes over the years and there are leverage points and there are moments of crises. Um, but the reality is, is that all of those organizations and all of those governments, they're not, they're not things in themselves. You know, they are a series of a whole lot of relationships. 
and they're people and they're us. We are the government and we are those organizations and we are part of that supply chain and we have influence. So Ego to Eco is all about creating a space where we can come together across those boundaries um, and discuss issues that we want to we want to address. And we have a really simple format. Um, we have this sort of sentence, which is, wouldn't it be amazing, which comes from Karen Dark. And it's just, um, Danella Meadows talks about, we can't predict the future, which will put fear into the heart of any project controls person, um, but we can envision the future. And mm -hmm. I love that concept of envisaging. And the whole problem is, is that um, we're a bunch of engineers and data techie people we like facts and figures um, but the things that are going to move us and shift us and change how we operate is actually at an emotional level and we need to connect with people at an emotional level um, mm. and you can't do that from a negative point of view so if the news is all just overwhelmingly actually I think I just prefer not to know you know <laughs> yes I'm going to drown and I, but let's just let that happen whilst I'm watching Netflix and you know hope it doesn't it's not too painful right. um, yeah so the whole point is, is that we're, it's, it's just been crazy. We've just ended up, we're working with um, the artist Wolfgang Buttress, um, who did the hive in Kew Gardens, uh, as well as many other beautiful pieces of work. Um, and he has a real um, passion for taking data. So the hive in Kew Gardens actually feeds off the uh, beehives in Kew Gardens and the bees in Kew Gardens impact the way the lights uh, work on the sculpture and on the music. Um, the sounds of bees are actually infiltrated into the music and the music's never the same because it's reacting to what's happening in the hive. So he wow. has this beautiful way of connecting people at an emotional level to nature through data, which I just found deeply fascinating. <laughs> and so, incredible. yeah, so we're working with him and we're creating what's called a digital forest. And each tree in the forest, including its mycelium, of course, um, is around a wouldn't it be amazing statement. So a topic or an outcome focused idea. And those are being sponsored by different organizations. So we have people like KPMG and Arup and WSP and LLDC and many others who are, sorry, that's a lot of acronyms. Um, that's the world we live in, um, but who are getting behind this. And what it allows is these conversations. So we run events um, where we bring people together and we ask this question of um, what does it mean to you to move from ego to eco? People envision there, wouldn't it be amazing? But what's equally important is what do they commit to do to making that wouldn't it be amazing work? And we work with them to help them understand um, what their skill set is, like who are they, what's their superpower? So when they're committing, they're committing from a place of agency. Um, so it's not just, I'll recycle my, you know, my water bottles or things like this. It's, and it's not they, the government needs to do this, this and this. Yes, yeah, sure, the government needs to do lots of things, but that's outside of your control. Let's focus on, given the constraints that you're in at this moment in time, you know, what can you do? And as you're saying, the, the UK is moving ahead on this. Um, and especially places like the Environmental Agency, and Joe Jolly is a very big um, advocate of the concept of, you know, we have the agency and we certainly have the urgency now um, and we all need to step forward. So what we're trying to create is these communities of interest um, around these uh, visions of the future. And it will be an open platform that anyone will be able to go onto um, and be able to hear the stories, um, be able to experience the trees. Each tree is unique because it's shaped by the conversation that happens. 
um, and it actually is shaped by the diversity of the people involved. So the more branches, the more wild the tree, um, the more diverse the voices. So we're digging into all of our networks um, and we're making sure we're getting youth voices, we're getting First Nations people, um, we are stretching across uh, into trying to get down the supply chain to make sure that we really hear from apprentices and we hear from people on the front line. Um, and you can turn up to one of these workshops and you could end up being there with a forester from Tanzania or a beekeeper from Mexico um, and be holding this really interesting, diverse conversation that might shift your thinking a little bit. And then we ask you to share your story and we capture those stories and that shapes the tree. So it's wow. quite a wonderfully crazy event, but very exciting. That That is amazing, Joe. I I don't know what to say. I, we'd love to help. Uh, is if there's anything that uh, Dale and I can do? Obviously, the platform's great, but you know, the more we can spread, as as you know, connect the mycelium and get people working together. Uh, I, I love the idea of of creating buzz around uh, using technology too, but you know, connecting natural systems with with human systems and using that for as a force for good. And I think you know we could do that on this platform. We know a lot of people now um, who would absolutely love to be involved uh so if anyone's interested i guess we'll, we'll, we'll send some details out on the show notes joe so they can get in touch and contribute yeah. and we we urge everyone to get involved that's fantastic um geez wow uh i love there's a whole bunch of things you said in there as well you know and you went back to you know agencies you know having having the agency or even almost the permission to make change but within your control that you can do change within your control and it's a bit like eating an elephant you, you chunk it down eat it one bit at a time I don't know if you've heard that before, but you're a very interesting person, Joe, because obviously people who become engineers are interested in things. But you're very much interested in people and things. And so I think, you know, maybe it is unique to your personality, but a very, very important personality, I think, for the future uh, of this planet and the projects that we work on. So thanks for being here. Um, I had one more question, and then I'm going to hand off to Dale. Um, so we talked about, and this is going back into the detail, I do apologize. After finishing it with that, you'd like to say, well, that's it, guys, that's a wrap. But <laughs> you know, critical points of failure. And one of the things that sticks in my mind was, was a guy we had on Simon White. He's fantastic as well. He talks about the theory of constraints and blockages, right? And you, you mentioned this guy in the basement, old Richard, uh, um, as a critical point of failure. One, he's trying to manage the throughput and obviously the whip of work, the work in progress, but he's also a stuck point. And, you know, if, if Richard got sick or if something happened to Richard, that could affect your whole access, you know? So, I'm wondering a lot of projects still have this and they're, they're people of influence because they are critical points of failure. Hmm. And I've certainly been ones in the past without realizing, but then I've, you know, in hindsight, oh yeah, if I left, that would be a problem. Dale's certainly been <laughs> a critical point of failure um, in, in a good way. How do we, how do we educate? What's the best way to kind of approach this problem set? Um, do you first identify key people of interest or influence and then look at key people of interest who are also critical factors to you know, impact the system as a whole, or is it a separate kind of uh, theory that you've read? Yeah, it's I I, I think about it as um, the power of connectivity, and it can't be resolved by me as an individual. As much this is where I've got to shift from my ego to my eco, because yeah, mm. I end up being a critical point of failure for at least a period of time when I'm just tearing apart the system a little bit and putting it back together there's a moment there where no one knows what it is except for me <laughs> it's like this is not a good place to be I need to get to the place where everyone's back in and bought in um, so for me and it's in your personal life as well I think these things use a similar concept is 
we've got down to a world where we kind of just think about, you know, our direct partner and maybe our kids as being our little tight bundle and that should give you everything you need in life and you should be completely resilient in that place. But actually, that's a bit of a point of failure because something goes wrong with that and you can end up feeling mm. quite adrift. And I think this works in a work environment as well. Um, I am I am so, it's so important to really reach out, to connect, to connect as much as you can, find your tribe, create relationships. And this is about creating the right environment within organisations that allow people time to become, like have your support network. So yeah, you do need to go out and, you know, to get your job done, you need to work with your frogs and all the various other people. You need a safe place to come back to. And actually mm-hmm. by creating those sort of communities where each of you is playing a part, you can often step into each other's roles then because you know about them. You know what they're doing. You're paying attention. You're leaning forward. You're there to support. Like you're basically sitting as a backup to somebody. You're like, right, if you need a hand, I may not do it the same way as you, but I can at least fill this gap if I need to. Um, on a pragmatic level where it's your technical experts, that's where I get deeply concerned so someone like me with a how-to there's lots of how-tos that you could do you could find lots of different pathways around you know me disappearing because you'll find another pathway it may not be as efficient or it may not be mine but it's something when you lose a key player like Richard losing him would have been fundamental Um, there's other people I've worked with whose knowledge is extensive and fundamental and I think that's where we've lost something in our industry and it's slowly coming back is the concept of the apprentice you know where you get to Mm you deliberately ensure that you have uh, on the same job that rich was on i had a brilliant guy who did a fabulous uh elvis impersonation but other than that he also knew every single way you could take a possession on a railway um nice he was phenomenal steve england he was a legend absolutely well he still is a legend um good on you steve and, yeah good on you steve <laughs> Um, and my God, he saved my bacon because he knew everything yeah. he needed to know about anything. And he's the only reason I could even pretend to be in the role I was in. Um, but I just used to sit there thinking, what happens when there's no Steve? Like, where, where's Steve Jr.? They can plug in. And so partly it was, I was, um, Karen, who I work with, um, Karen Elson, who's an absolute legend in herself, is a, does all the knowledge, um, the learning legacies. Um, and she just launched mm-hmm. the HS2 Learning Legacy. And I mean, what she does is part of the way to resolve this is that she captures that knowledge. So you get, you can't get all of it because you don't get it in context. Um, but it is brilliant to be able to get this stuff down in a way that others can absorb it still, even if that person's not there. So there's an element of that where you capture as much as you can, um, the apprenticeship system, and then this resilience of, you know, get people around you, share your knowledge, share your skills, get it written down, come on blogs, you know, write, uh, come on podcasts and write blogs. And, and you know, one of the problems is the people who have the deepest knowledge just don't take the time to do things like this. Mm. You know, it's, or they, especially if they're creatives, um, the, the vulnerability of exposing yourself is really difficult. Um, and so we only hear from the extroverts who are, willing to come and share their knowledge it's like that we're missing huge chunks so i mean Mm -hmm. no matter how uncomfortable this makes you it's not about you putting yourself forward it's others hear what you have to say and it either reinforces their knowledge or makes them think slightly differently or helps them understand something so i think the sort of work you guys are doing is fundamental to creating some of that resilience well thank you appreciate uh those Mm -hmm. kind words uh there's a lot to unpack there as well. And I know we are heading towards the end of the pod, Joe, um, but I just want to rewind slightly 
uh, you mentioned everything around, you know, ego to eco and everything you're doing in that space. We did talk to um, Dr. Karen Thompson, Nigel Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with them and Dave Corbin back on episode 73 around responsible project management. And they've got a charter. And if um, you, you're not aware of them, we can put you in touch. Maybe, you know, you can collaborate to, to some extent because they're in the education space. So working with universities, et cetera, for the pipeline of future project managers. So maybe there's something there. We can put you in touch, you know, the mycelium. Fabulous. Um, <laughs> so we'll look to do that. But I also had an interesting um, thought when you're talking about politics and how it all works. And I don't watch a lot of television during the daytime, but the other day, just, you know, working from home, had a bit of lunch and I put on the news and just happened to be prime minister's questions in the UK. I thought, let me watch a bit of this. And it's hugely entertaining because it's quite theatrical. But I thought to myself, well, the PM, the prime minister takes a lot of flack from all the opposition parties. And then he typically defends or attacks back. But what if he turned around and went, actually, you know what? That's a great idea. Why don't we work together? What would happen, right? <laughs> because I've never seen that happen. But what would actually happen? Because that's what we're actually trying to encourage our teams to do. When you have mm -hmm. opposing views, invite it in. Be curious about it and go, okay, maybe there is something to that. Maybe the sum of our parts is equal to something greater than the individual. But... I, just going back to them, my thoughts were, well, if, if any of if the, the general public are watching that, they're going, okay, that's how you lead, because that's obviously what we're seeing our leaders do. And I don't know if it's a great advertisement, but um, that's just my opinion. But let's not get into the politics. I do want to make a little bit of space for our feature. And without Martin here, who usually takes us through it, I will take us through it. So if you're ready, it's a little bit of fun near the end of the podcast. Our first one is called Defend the Indefensible. So it's inspired by okay. ridiculous statements that we hear every single day. And we invite our guest, you, to defend it for 30 seconds. No more. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> so if you're not ready, let's go. <laughs> you can do it. Let's right. Go. Okay. So your statement to defend is, we need to take emotion out of project delivery. Well, of course you do. I mean, seriously, why would you want to deal with emotions? They're messy. They're unorganized. You cannot put them in a, a reporting chart. Like, how are you supposed to say, oh, it was very emotional today. Should we say three people cried and four people went to, you know, went and had a scream and two gave a hug? Does that mean we're doing well as a project? I mean, seriously, how's anyone going to do anything if you're going to take emotions into account? I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that you even thought that we'd go down that pathway. Let's just get back to facts, facts, facts and facts. Maybe a bit of data if we're lucky. Perfect. <laughs> Brilliant. You look like you really enjoyed that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. Right. Uh, on to the next one then. It's called Fiverr, a quick pop quiz all about yourself. So if you're ready, five questions. Number one, early mornings or late nights? Oh, early mornings. Question Definitely. two, what are the three must-have behaviors you look for in successful project teams? Trust. Um, I'll go for a Brene Brown one, a bit of vulnerability um and authenticity keep it real. awesome nice question three what is the best book you've been gifted um braiding sweet grass is the most phenomenal book i'm going to forget her name kimma oh i can't think what her last name is but a wonderful combination of 
Native American history or uh, ancestry um, with a scientific background. And so therefore looking at indigenous ways from a scientist's point of view, which actually just makes sense of things that have been learned from a practical point of view, but actually do get backed up by science. Um, plus also wonderfully lyrical and just very real and in touch with nature. Wow. Wow. Check that one out, folks. Question four, what is the biggest mistake you've made on a project? <laughs> There's just too many to count. <laughs> just the biggest I think, one. <laughs> I think the biggest issues I've had have been to hold my ground almost as a point of ego. So just digging in using my intellect to you know and my powers of persuasion to stick to my guns and not actually taking the time to hear what was happening on the other side of the table um and then ending up in a contractual warfare where so many letters you tells you how long ago this one was but um letters going back and forth until basically you had to sit there and have the discussion of should we just go 50 50 on the on the bills <laughs> i was like oh my god i should have just let go like seriously why was i fighting so hard to yeah. not be wrong i was so needed to know and yeah. such important lessons in that thanks for sharing question five if you could choose one person to be stuck in a lift with who would it be and why <laughs> i'd have to be well I, oh gosh i'll get in trouble it's my daughters but um i can choose either one actually would be perfect i won't choose which one but they're always a really good laugh and we'll definitely have a great conversation and i get lots of hugs in the meantime so you know Awesome. Fantastic. Well, we've got to give another shout out to Jonathan Norman for putting you in touch with us. Thanks, John, we, we owe John a massive gift, Val, because he's put so many yep. amazing guests in touch with us. I think this whole series, you know, has hmm. been a John Norman series. It's fantastic. But um, Joe, before we let you go, you know, we have to have you back because there's so much we haven't uncovered with you. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, I'd be very pleased to be back. This is great fun. Um, I think just um, we'll send out some information about ego to eco. Um, yep. One of the things is that you can fill in a card, um, which is effectively your ego to eco statement of what wouldn't it be amazing to do and what you commit to. I'd love for as many people as possible to fill that in. We need to hear the hidden voices. If you're the least likely person to fill that in, please fill it in. Um, we want mm. to hear from you. Uh, there's a good chance there's something sitting in the back of your brain that is part of the solution. It doesn't need to be big. It doesn't need to save the world in one go. We do this in small steps, um, but we need to do the small steps together. Awesome. Fantastic. And yeah, get us those links. We'll post them in the show notes. It'll go out with a podcast. And yeah, folks do get in touch with Joe and fill out that link as well. Val, any final thoughts from you? Oh, Joe, I think, yeah, you definitely have to come back as our resident uh uh, guest on all sorts of things. I mean, we covered so many different topics in one conversation, but I, I love the, the, the element of ego to eco. And also I think uh, find your tribe for anyone listening out there, you know, get into those communities of interest, have a voice, um, find your superpower. Fantastic advice, Joe. Uh, thanks for having you. Um, thanks for being on the show. Actually. I really appreciate it. No, appreciate being here. Thank you very much. Really nice to meet you. Yeah, it's been amazing. Thank you, Joe. That's all the time we have, folks. Remember to hit subscribe before you go. And a massive thank you once again to our guest, Joe Lucas. And thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me and Val, it's bye for now. For more information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch via our website.
You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.